So we, I've been, I've been kind of thinking back over the last year a lot, over the last several weeks, as, as we both look forward, I a lot of times find that God keeps bringing stuff up that happened in the past. And so this last year, one of the sweetest moments I had, one of those moments where it was just kind of like, I can't believe I just experienced that, was I was up at Palomar. Uh, it, it was the first time I'd gone up in the year. It was a February, so it was cold, it was wet, it was overcast. And I went down to this rock that's called Inspiration Point, and it, it sits out over this canyon. And on a clear day, if you look down the canyon, you can see all the way to the Pacific Ocean. It's got about, about a 150-foot drop straight down, so I only get to sit on that rock when my wife's not with me. Um, Otherwise, she reminds me that your life is not your own, you know. You were bought at a price, therefore, you know, whatever. So I'm sitting on the rock, and I can't see anything because it's completely socked in. I've got, I, I can see just a couple of the trees in front of me, just the tops of them, but everything else is kind of hidden in mist. And then if I look out towards where the ocean normally is, there's just this massive wall of white. And as I sat there, it was this very, very peaceful morning. Or it, was, it was in the evening at this point. I had just gotten up the mountain. That was the first place I went was to go sit down there. And as I sat there, I realized that those clouds that were out at the end of the canyon were creeping closer and closer. And it was not coming slowly. It was coming very quickly. And, and I found myself looking behind me and studying the hill that I'd walked down to get here because I realized in a few minutes I may not be able to see and I don't know if I'll be able to find my way back to the camp. So I need to memorize it because this one might be walking by faith and not by sight in just a minute. Sure enough, about a minute later, the, the, the wind picks up and this wall of cloud comes flying through the canyon. And it, if you've ever read the Old Testament about the the Israelites describing what it was like when the presence of God fell on a place and that Shekinah glory filled that space, that's what it felt like. It felt like there was just this, just, and, and, and I couldn't see anything. I could hardly even see my fingers in front of me. It was that dense. And I was truly, literally in the middle of a cloud, up in the, uh, sitting on this precipice overlooking a gorge. And for about a minute and a half, I was completely whited out. And then the cloud passed, and it kept going up the canyon, and a few wisps start, you know, trailed off past it. The, the wind died down, and suddenly I could see the trees all the way across the canyon. And as I turned to look out towards where that big wall of clouds had been, suddenly I could see the sun setting over the Pacific. And it was awe-inspiring. Just that, that transition from nothing and overcast and completely clouded into clarity and sight and being able to see this gorgeous orange sunset over the water. And I was in awe of God's creation. And at the same time, I'm looking around like, who can I tell about this right now? Like, I was so sad in that moment that there wasn't somebody with me to be able to share it with. And so it was both a reminder of, of the awe that our God's creation can inspire in us. And sometimes just being out in nature makes me feel closer to him. But it was also a tangible reminder of the fact that you and I have been created for community. We have been made to do life with other people and to the, the things that we experience to share those with people around us. 
And that's one of the reasons, probably one of the largest reasons, why social media has absolutely taken off in the last couple of decades. Because it gives us this ability to share with our friends what we're doing, what we're experiencing, what we're thinking, what we're eating. And we don't even have to just tell them, we can show them pictures of what we're eating. It's, have you ever been to one of those restaurants where, you know, the waiter comes and serves the food? I'm sure Ken experiences this over at Fleming's all the time. He comes and serves the food and nobody goes to grab their fork and knife. They pull out their phone in everybody's position. Oh, hey, okay, move over to the side. Okay, move this here. Move your purse, please. Nobody wants to see your purse. Okay, to get the shot. I've been guilty of that a couple of times. But, but we, we, share, we, we invite people into our lives, but it's not really our lives per se. It's the carefully crafted life that we want to share with people, the, the facade, what we, what we think is praiseworthy and, and admirable and all those kind of things. That's what they get. And the stuff that we're not so thrilled about, the stuff we're kind of embarrassed about, we don't share that with them. But by and large, we have a larger and larger group of friends that we can share our lives with. And at the same time, ironically, sociological studies are showing that we have actually less and less core friendships in our lives. Let me give you a couple examples. Back in 1985, sociological studies showed that on average, people had about three core friendships, three people in their life that they could share what was going on, those 3 a.m. people that you could call at any time of the day or night and just pour your heart out to. People that you were doing life with on a very intimate level. On average, people had about three. In the last couple of years, as they've done those same studies, they found that that number has dropped from three to two. But that's not the most sobering statistic. The most sobering statistic is that those individuals that identified as having zero close confidants in their life has grown from 10% of people in 1985, recognizing that, to today having 24% of people would say, I don't have anybody in my life to do life with. I think one of these is still turned on. I'm getting some click in here, so I'm just going to turn it off. So 24% of people would respond by saying, I don't think I've got anybody. We have been created for community. God has designed us to be known and to know others. And in fact, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. I know we go here a lot. I know we, we spend an inordinate amount of time, when you look at Scripture, we spend an inordinate amount of time in the first three chapters, but there's a reason for that. The first three chapters of Scripture help reveal the human condition that we currently experience. What what transpired in the garden, why God created us, and ultimately how sin has tarnished that, shapes how we experience life today. And so we read that in Genesis 1 and 2, God is like this divine artist, kind of like he did on that day when I'm sitting up on the mountainside, <clears throat> speaking the world into existence and creating order out of the chaos. And from time to time, like any artist who really enjoys what he's doing, he steps back and, it, and just kind of takes in what he's done and he keeps going, man, that's good and that's good and that's good. And then he identifies one thing that's not good in his creation. 
In in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. He created Adam in the most intimate of way. After he's been speaking things to existence, he then gets down on his hands and knees and out of the dust of the earth, he creates Adam, the first human being. And then in the most intimate way possible, he gets down on his hands and his knees and he breathes the breath of life into his lungs. And we, humanity, become this beautiful synthesis of corruptible you know, creation and divine spirit. And then he says, it's not good that man should be alone. And so we know how the story goes. He creates a partner, a suitable helper for Adam. First, he parades all of the animals in front of him. And Adam gets to join with him in naming them, a part of taking dominion and caring for becoming a steward of God's creation. But out of all of those animals, no suitable helper was found, no partner. And so then he creates Eve, woman, to be a partner to Adam in this. And please do not get stuck on the male-female marriage component because you can Fulfill God's mandate to be in relationship and not be married. Jesus didn't get married. Paul didn't get married. The guy who wrote the majority of the New Testament was not married himself. And yet, both of them fulfilled that call to be known, to be in community. God has created us to be known. Because we are created in His image. We are His image bearers. And our God is in community himself. He is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has made us to be in communion both with himself as well as with one another. And if you go to the Ten Commandments several hundred years later, as, the, as he's bringing the people of Israel out of captivity, in, out of slavery, and he's saying, now I am choosing you as my people to be my representatives. And I'm going to covenant with you He gives them the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments are there not simply to to be a list of rules, but to preserve relationship with Him. You have no other gods before me. You don't make any idols. You know, protect and preserve that one day out of the week. Rest with me and reconnect with me. All four of the, the, the first four commandments are about preserving our relationship with God. And then the last six are all about the, the horizontal relationship, the relationships we have with people around us because God was carving out and protecting the community that he created us to be in. But it didn't last very long because we know what happens next in Genesis chapter 3, so I hope that you're still there. Because very quickly, we see that sin enters in and sin begins to warp God's intention for Adam and Eve, for mankind, to be able to be in relationship with one another and be fully known and fully comfortable in relationship. He comes sliding in and he begins, the first thing he does is not point to the tree of of the knowledge of good and evil and say, you should eat that. The first thing he does is actually he begins to undermine Adam and Eve's perception of their creator. He begins to cast doubt as to whether he truly is as good and trustworthy and caring as they believe him to be. And so he 
he starts with questions. Did, did he really say not to eat any of the fruit? Oh, no, we can eat the fruit. Just, just not the fruit off of that tree, because if we touch it, we'll die. Oh, you won't die? Don't you realize God is holding out on you? Don't you realize that he's made you deficient? He doesn't want you to be like him. And so he's withheld something from you. You don't know what good or what's good. You don't know what's evil, do you? No, not really. Yeah, because he's made you deficient. And in that moment, doubt in God's goodness creeps in. Doubt in whether Adam and Eve are fully, wonderfully made begins to creep in. And suddenly, in that moment, the fruit begins to look a whole lot more attractive. So let's pick up the story now in verse 6. When, and this is after Satan has planted those seeds of doubt in her heart, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree, that it was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and that it was desirable for gaining wisdom, this can give me what he has withheld from me. This is my pseudo-savior that can provide for me what I didn't get from who I thought was trustworthy. And so when they saw that it was desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. But let's not throw all of the burden of responsibility on Eve because Adam is standing right next to her. Verse, I'm sorry, uh, we're continuing in verse 6. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. So Adam... By the way, the only one whom God said, don't touch the tree on the, fr- the fruit of the tree of good and evil. He was the one who articulated that to Eve, but it was Adam whom God said, don't touch it, don't eat it. And he's standing right there as Satan is tempting her and is tempting him. He does not speak up. She eats, she hands it to him. He eats. Verse seven. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked Up to this point, did they not realize that they had no clothing on? I mean, were they blinded to that fact? Or is is this getting more at something else, something deeper? That up to this point, it hasn't mattered whether they are naked and vulnerable in front of one another. Because up to this point, who they are is perfectly fine. They are comfortable with themselves. But the first casualty of the fall is their self-perception. When sin and shame enter into God's creation, it twists their perception of themselves. And suddenly, even though they have been created in God's image to be a reflection of his heart into creation, suddenly it's as if they see themselves through a carnival mirror. They're warped. They're ugly. They're embarrassed. They feel vulnerable and they are not okay feeling vulnerable. And so they do what comes most naturally when we feel exposed. They reach for something to hide themselves, to cover their shame. And for them, the closest thing at hand was fig leaves. So they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. So the first, the first casualty of the fall is their self-perception, and it drove them into hiding. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God. Not only does it cause them to hide themselves from one another, it causes them to hide from God as well. But the Lord God called to the man, hey, where are you? And Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. 
And I think God already knows what's going on. You know how some of you parents, like your kids do something, you know what they've done, but you, you coax them out so that they have the choice whether to be honest, so that they have the choice to, to own it or to try to come up with a story. So God asks him, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from that tree that I told you not to eat from? And here the man has an opportunity. He can own it. He can take responsibility or he can try to pass the buck. And that's exactly what he does. He instantly points at the woman. He says, the woman that you gave me, she gave it to me and, and I ate it. So not only is he throwing Eve under the bus, but he's actually put, throwing some of the blame on God. Hey, you gave her to me. She's the one who made me do it. So you guys are responsible, not me. I'm just a victim in all of this. Okay, so don't, don't, don't blame me. I'm so glad that we've moved past this. We've grown up. (laughs) I I yell at my boys the other day. I I yell at Ethan. I snap. And it is so beyond necessary. I, I blew it as a father. And I find myself getting down on his level, going, Ethan, the reason I did this is because you... And I'm like, shoot! totally trying to throw all of this on him when in reality I'm ashamed of the way I just handled it. We still do this. We still, in in our shame and in our inability to live the way that we want to live and to treat people the way we want to treat them, because of sin in our lives, we look to other people and try to shift the blame. Now, Eve isn't perfect in this either. When God goes, Eve, what's up? She's like, "The, the serpent, he made me do it. And again, blame Blame, blame. We see right there in the garden the way that sin and shame begin to twist their perception of themselves, send them into hiding, cause them to, to present instead a facade to the world around them. I am not acceptable in and who I am, so I will hide who I am because I'm ashamed of it. And instead, I will plaster up and I will create a facade of fig leaves. We might call them masks that we put on. Those, those happy faces when we don't feel happy. And some of you probably did this this morning, right? You're having a hard day. Maybe, maybe it was difficult to get out of the house. Maybe you got in an argument with your sweetie. Maybe your kids were driving you so nuts that you're, you're yelling at them and you're snapping and you're angry and you're frustrated. Maybe you have carried in with you today something that is truly, truly a painful pearl that you don't want to share with anybody because you're ashamed of it. Maybe it's something you're struggling with. Maybe it's a fear that that it seems to overwhelm your trust in God right now. And as you sit in these seats, you're going, this all sounds good and everything, but honestly, this is bigger than him. What I'm carrying right now is bigger than my God, it seems. And you know that that's the wrong answer, and you know that if anybody knew that, they they would shake their heads at you. And so you just keep it bottled up. And you sit here, and when you see somebody that you know, hey, how you doing? You're not about to tell them. Because let's be honest, they don't want to know. They're not asking, how are you doing? They're, they're just saying hi. And we do that by saying, how you doing? And so we don't want to put on them something that we don't enjoy carrying ourselves, so how do we respond? <laughs> I'm good. How about you? Right? And we move on. And they can't lean in and help because they don't know the real you. They don't know what's really going on. All they know is the facade. 
Now here's the really twisted part of all of this. We go to great lengths to cultivate pseudo-selves, to cultivate personas. We do this on social media where we, we curate the parts of our lives that are acceptable, and that's what we present to the world. And the parts that aren't so presentable, the parts that we're not so proud of, those they will never hear about. Those we bury deep under layer upon layer of fig leaves. And our fig leaves look like busyness. They can look like uh, accumulation. They can look like exercising so that we look a certain way. They can look like, um, you know, just keeping ourselves busy. They can look like being in a relationship because that somehow then fulfills us because we're incomplete as we are. Our fig leaves can take on many, many, um, you know, different things. It can look like when, when we can't deal with our own insecurity and we're starting to feel it and we just can't get out of it, it can look like the things we run to to try to anesthetize ourselves. I call them habits because they're the things that we run to when we're hungry, angry, bored, isolated, or tired. Run out of fingers on this hand but our habits that we run after because we just kind of reached the end of ourselves and quite honestly, we need to anesthetize the pain because we don't want to deal with it. We just feel, ah. For me, one of those is books. I run to books and I'm not talking about reading theology, okay? I'm not being holier than anybody here. I drown myself in pulp fiction because it's just a way to shut off. And in the process, I'm not present with my family. And that's one of them. Some of us run to alcohol. Some of us run to exercise. Some of us just stay at work longer hours. Some of us run to drugs of some kind. Some of us run to relationships because there at least we feel wanted. But whatever it might be, we use things to cover over and paper over and hide our vulnerability. And we present to the world who we think they want us to be. But here's the really twisted part of all of this. We do this because we're afraid that if they saw the real us, what would they do? They'd reject us. They would reject us. And so, instead, we sit in judgment upon ourselves. We determine that we are not acceptable. And so we never present the real self to us because we have already rejected ourselves. The very thing that we are terrified other people will do to us, we do to ourselves. But I have found this to be the case. I have found that that was never God's intention. That's not what God wants for us. In fact, that is not the life that is truly life. And Jesus said... I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. How can we grab a hold of that? How can we truly experience that if all we do is go through life presenting a facade, pretending to be someone that we're not, and terrified the whole time that people will get a peek at some point behind the curtain of our lives and realize that just as Dorothy did with the Wizard of Oz, that we are not nearly as great and powerful as we purport ourselves to be. So that's not what God wants for us. We have been made to do life in community, first with God as well as with one another. 
The reason that Jesus hung on a cross was not simply to save us so that we could be reconciled to God there and then at some point. Yes, he died on the cross to deal with our sins once and for all so that that would no longer divide us from him. But he didn't do it for when we die. Or I should say he did not do it simply for that. He died on the cross so that we could be reconciled to God here and now in this life. That we who, are, who look at ourselves as sinners and prodigals who have wandered far from home and have been disqualified from our relationship with him so that we prodigals can come home and be reconciled to him here and now. Sinners become saints. Prodigals become sons and daughters adopted back into the family and, and, and loved upon. This is how God showed his love for us. That while we were still in open rebellion, Jesus Christ died for us so that we could be reconciled to our Father. That's love. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We didn't ask for it. He gave it. That is the definition of a gift. Not something we earn. A gift. But it goes deeper than that. Because he didn't just die on the cross to reconcile us to God. When we give our hearts to him and we come into communion with him, we get invited into a great, big, sometimes dysfunctional family of God. We get invited into the messiness of life. And it's wonderful. And it's messy. But this is what God created us for, was to do life with one another. In fact, if if you look throughout Scripture, particularly the New Testament, it is full of one another language. There are some 59 different one another statements found throughout Scripture. Bear one another's burdens. Walk with one another. Encourage one another. Spur one another on. um, Forgive one another. Forgive as the Lord God forgave you. I think something like 16 times. God specifically says, love one another. Why is loving one another so important? Well, Jesus put it this way. This is how the world will know you are my disciples. By the way you love one another. By the way you treat one another. By the way you come into communion with one another, walk with one another and encourage one another. That's how the world will know you're my disciples. In other words... Our witness is inextricably tied to the community that we keep. And when people look at us, how will they know that we've been transformed by God? They'll know it by the way we treat the people around us, and particularly the people that we are in close-knit community with. But I have to say, Our witness is not the only reason why God cares about us being in community. Just as importantly is that when we are in community, we are shaped and molded into the people that God has created us to be. When we are in communion with one another, it is one of the primary tools that he uses to carve away those fig leaves that feel like they are a part of ourselves. Some of us have become so familiar with the fig leaves that we carry around that we've forgotten that we even wear them. And it's within community with one another that he begins to peel them away and invites us into the very scary but very necessary process of coming out of hiding. 
the writer of, of um, Proverbs says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. As you take, take two pieces of steel, think of the, um, the knife set you have at home, right? And you have that one little circle part that my kids like to use as a lightsaber. Not a good idea. Granted, it's the only one without an edge. But you, know, you, pull, you, you take that thing out and you take your knife and you run it across the, the edge of that. And you do, do that. And what that does is that steel, sharpening steel, adding, a honing the blade. And God looks at relationships and he says, this is one of the primary tools that I use to sharpen and refine you into a, into a weapon that I can use to advance my kingdom purposes. This is how I choose to shape you. And so we've been created for community. And that's why, can we, can we throw our purpose statement as a church up on? That's why when we start talking about our purpose, and this is one that over the course of this month we keep coming back to because I want us to see that this is the driving kind of point in everything that we do is that Lighthouse Community Church is committed to making disciples. We've already defined that a couple weeks ago. A disciple is a fully committed follower of Jesus. A disciple is somebody who wants to spend time with their rabbi so that they can be like their rabbi so that they can ultimately do what their rabbi does. That's what we've been created to do. That's what we have been called to become is disciples of Jesus Christ. But how do we do that? And that's why those last three parts, we want to make disciples who love God, love one another, and love our neighbors. And so last week, I used this analogy of, of a light bulb, right? This light bulb, I haven't broken it yet. Let's pray that that doesn't happen. This light bulb represents you and it represents me. We were created to be light in the darkness, shining like stars in the universe so that people would be drawn into communion with their Father God who created them for Himself. We get to be this beautiful representatives, imperfect as we are. God created us to shine. But as we talked about last week, we cannot shine without power running through us. And, and so Jesus invites us into this abiding relationship with him. And we pointed out that this part at the base of the light bulb is probably the most important part of the light bulb because this is the part that screws into and connects to the power source. And as it does so, the power of its intimate abiding connection begins to flow through it and it can produce light. But there's another part of the light bulb that is very, very crucial, right? almost as crucial, and that is this filament that's inside of it. This filament here, which I believe is made out of copper, one of the reasons why I like these old school Edison light bulbs is because they've got this long filament and the electricity runs up through one side of it and down the other side of it, and it's that coil that heats up that ultimately produces the light that, that, provi that shines in the darkness. And I would suggest that this filament symbolizes the community that God has created you and me to be a part of. Because as we are in life with other people, as we do life with them, as our lives are inextricably tied into 
And sometimes it's messy. Sometimes it's not all that clean. Sometimes it forces us to slow down. Sometimes it causes us to speed up as we try to kind of match pace with other people. Sometimes it's like iron sharpening iron, and we know that sometimes that creates sparks. It can be uncomfortable. And nobody likes to have their imperfections kind of exposed. But as we do this, and as God uses other people to sharpen us, as he used my, my, my wife when she and I first started dating, because I'll, I'll tell you this, when I first started dating Kathy, I was like 22 years old at the time, I figured that God had pretty much ident- helped me identify all the areas of growth that I had in my life. I kid you not, I was naive and arrogant enough to think that I was finished, that you know, sorry, Merv, I know you're still working on it, but me at 22, I was there! And then I started dating my girl, and I realized what a selfish, self-centered, and relationally lazy person I really was. So much of my world revolved around me and my comfort. And it was in proximity to my girl. As I began to, to seek her out and spend time, I realized if I'm going to do life with her, i got to work on I've got to allow God to continue this process. And she's not the only one. God has brought handfuls of people into my life over the course of the 40 years that I've been on this planet. He has brought dozens of people into my life that have walked alongside of me and helped shape and mold me into the image of Christ. And this, is, this symbolizes the fact that you and I were created to do life in community with other people. And as we draw into them, as we connect with them, God's Spirit works through us, and when people look at us and the way that we interact, our lives shine. This is how the world will know that you're my disciples, by the way you love one another. It can only happen in communion, in community with one another. So you and I have been created for community. We have been called to do life so that we can allow God to work through us to shine in the darkness. Sounds great. Sign me up. How the heck do we do that? Because that's really the question, isn't it? Like, it's one thing to talk theologically, but practically, what does that look like? How can I find that community that you're talking about? So let me just be bluntly honest about who we are as a church and what we're at, because we can run at lots of things. But if we want this to practically take root and become reality, if this really is our purpose, is that we would draw into an abiding relationship with God and we would be closely connected to one another so that we can ultimately bear light, that we can be light bearers in our community, then we need to be very intentional about how we cultivate this as a church community. And we are. That is the reason why we put such a strong emphasis on life groups. We call them life groups because this is where we have found people can do life with one another. Life groups are groups of 8 to 16. Some of them go as high as 20 people, although that's pretty big. And if you're finding that your group's around 20, it's probably time that you prayerfully go, God, are you going to birth two groups out of one so we have space for other people? Just saying. You know the people that are uncomfortably laughing right now? They're the ones who recognize I was talking to them. Yeah. They say when you throw a, a rock into a pack of dogs, you know the one that got hit because it's the one that barks. Anyway, we have been created for community. Life groups are the primary vehicle with which we do life, do community together here at Lighthouse. 
Life groups meet in people's homes and around this campus throughout the week, typically on Tuesdays and Thursdays primarily, but we have a couple of other groups, like for instance, we have the young adults group that meet every other Monday. That is a life group. That is a community of people who are saying, I want to be known, I want to walk with other people, I want to continue the conversation from the weekend. And in fact, that's one of the primary things that our life groups do is they continue the conversation from the weekend. Because here's what I've found in the 20 some odd years that I've been part of life group. I have found that some of the most powerful teaching moments did not take place on a Sunday. It took place on a Tuesday when I was in group. And the same things we talked about there, those seeds that were, plant, that were kind of sown on Sunday, as I began to beat it around with other people and we began to go, is this really real? Have you seen this to be the case? And as we think about it, way more is caught than taught. Way more. There's so much more power in the discovery than simply being told. So as we wrestle with these things and we look into the scriptures and we begin to unpack it for ourselves as a community, God begins to take the seeds of truth that may have been hinted at on Sunday and begins to press them firmly into the soil of our lives so that they can begin to take root. He begins to use other people to speak words of truth, to kind of strip away some of the detrius that could get in the way, some of the stones that are in the soil of our hearts. He begins to pour his spirit onto those seeds so that they can start taking root and bearing fruit in our lives. And I have seen that happen more powerfully on a Tuesday or a Wednesday in a life group than any message I've ever heard. I have had the benefit of getting to sit under some of the most influential, uh, you know, just really gifted teachers. I could start telling you names. It doesn't really matter. God has gifted them as teachers. And yet I would sit in my life group on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, and I'd say, hey, what did Mike, what did you hear Mike say this weekend? And typically it was the funny joke he made or uh, the story that he told that really stuck. Very seldom was there, oh my gosh, this really resonated. And, and oftentimes I had to remind them, like these are some of the best messages. Oh my gosh, I wish I'd given that message. And it's like crickets when I say, hey, what really resonated for you? I have found that within life group, people's lives have been changed because they were in proximity to other people, not simply because it's got the right information. It is this life on life that changes people. And so I will tell you with absolute confidence, with complete sincerity, as the guy that typically stands up here and gets to teach you, if you really want to be transformed... The most powerful place that you can be is not here on Sunday morning, but in somebody's home or around this campus on a Tuesday or a Wednesday during the week in communion with other people. That, not this, is the most powerful and best thing that we have to offer as a church. And if you're not currently in a life group, you are missing out on the best of what we have to offer in order to help you become the disciple that God created you to be. But I'm the pastor. That's my job to, to, to say that, right? So I'm going to invite uh, my friends John and Liz, who are not paid to, to say nice things about life groups. And I'm going to invite them to share briefly their experience, why they have not only participated in life groups for years. Come on up. Because you guys are so short, they won't be able to see you if you're down there. Just kidding. Oh, it's nice. It's not too hot. 
Why don't you share with us uh, what you guys have experienced, why it is that you pour yourself not only into participating in, but now leading life groups. Liz and I moved to California eight years ago knowing nobody. We had no friends out here. Liz had a job, and we said, we'll go. Um, That very first Sunday that we visited Lighthouse in the summer of 2010, there was a men's barbecue announced for the following Wednesday. Uh, We lived two blocks away from where it was going to be held. Liz was going to be working out of town that week. And so not knowing anybody except a couple guys that I had met that Sunday morning, I decided to go. And that Wednesday night changed my experience of what started to change my experience of what church community could be like, where I saw men sharing stories, experiences, um, seeking counsel and advice in quite honestly a way I didn't even know existed. So fast forward to now, Liz and I have been changed by the value and the power of living life in community. Um, Spending quality time with church family outside of Sunday morning is probably where we have grown the most, without a doubt. Um, It's in life groups that we've had time to get to know others, uh, had time for others to get to know us. And, um, you know, it took a step of faith to commit to show up to a life group or even that first barbecue but it's that step of faith has made all the difference. Uh, the difference in our lives, difference in our faith walk, and difference in our marriage, too. Uh, many of you have heard my testimony before um, that I was a fake Christian who was just going through the motions. And it really wasn't until we came to California and Lighthouse Um, that I did learn that being a believer wasn't about following the rules of a religion, but it was about being in relationship with um, God. And that's when things in me started to change for the the better. Um, Like many of you have experienced, uh, once I got it, I wanted to know everything about how to develop a relationship with Jesus. I wanted to learn how to pray. Um, I wanted to tap into that power, and I wanted to develop good spiritual practices. Uh, So luckily, we joined a small group, and through that and the fact that I met many amazing women who um, began to pour into me one-on-one and answer all of my questions and um, show me what it meant to be a disciple. Um, We did that through... Exercising, uh, shopping, uh, eating together, texting, vacationing, um, and those really, and generally as Pastor Eric says, we were doing life together. Mm -hmm. And um, because of these friendships, like you said, I I felt known. And um, they were here to support me with building my relationship with Jesus. And um, to every day challenge me and how to grow and develop in my faith and um, the application of it in my day-to-day life. And um, I think my faith walk to this point and who I'm becoming today would not be the same had I not been in a life group and had I, had I sought out mentoring relationships with other women. As we stand here today, we can look around this room and see people that have poured the love of God into us people we've shared time with who have prayed for us, who are continuing to pray for us. 
And so if you're not in a life group, you're really shortchanging yourself and you're missing out on some of God's blessings. So um, take that step. Get involved. Thank you, John. Thank you, Liz. One of the things that that Liz said, um, just as we are known, we can come out of hiding. You know, we have an enemy who would love to say, you can let people in so far, but you don't want to let them in all the way. Because if they knew the real you, um, they would reject that part of you. And, And I have found just the opposite to be the case. As I lean into community, as I let people in, as I begin to kind of peel back the layers of some of those fig leaves that I hide behind and let other people know who I really am, healing begins, but also it begins to shine the light of truth on the fact that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. Because our enemy, and we have a very real enemy, it's the same one that slithered into the the garden the very beginning and began to cast seeds of doubt in God's goodness. We have an enemy who loves to whisper lies into our ears, if anybody knew this, if anybody knew what you really struggled with, if anybody knew the thoughts that fly through your mind, the feelings of anger, lust, guilt, if anybody knew, or the the, the greed that you struggle with, your feelings of inadequacy, if anybody knew how inadequate you really are, they would reject you. So you better keep that hidden. You better be dang good at slapping on those fig leaves and, and, and pretending to be what they think, what you think they want you to be. And when you step into community with other people and you can begin to take off some of those fig leaves and go, here's who I am, here's what I struggle with, my goodness, I have this question, I have this doubt, what have you found to be the case? And sometimes it's, you know what, I have the same doubt and it's like, oh my goodness, I'm so glad to know that I'm not the only one who struggles in this area. As you begin to do that, It shines light into the enemy's favorite and most powerful tool that he uses to cut us off from community. Because our enemy is like a lion. How does a lion hunt? A lion hunts by identifying those who are kind of on the fringes of the herd. And then they do everything they can to separate them even more. And our enemy does that in the shadow areas of our life. To isolate us. And then keep us in hiding. And say the only part of you that you can present to the world is the curated parts that you're proud of. The parts that are not really you. And as I've let other people into my life, like Liz and John have in their life group, God has shined, that, that has shined light into those areas so that when the enemy begins to go, if anybody knew, I can go, they do know. And they love me. And it, and it reveals the enemy's lies to be exactly what they are, lies straight from the pit of hell. It removes the power over us when we allow others in. And so life groups are the primary way that we as a church embrace and run into communion with one another. It's where we continue to do life, and quite honestly, it's where the stuff that I'm throwing out right now gets to have the space to take root in your hearts, which is why we encourage our life groups to really lean into unpacking the messages from the Sunday as opposed to just doing their own thing. So that as we as a church begin to turn our life groups, which are typically our first responders, the people who are in, the people who are truly engaged in our church, they're turning as well and we are going together where we feel the Spirit is leading us.
But I will say that they are not the only way that God shapes us. They are not the only type of community that God can use. And in fact, I want to introduce you to today to something that is even more intimate and deeper than life groups, something that has, has probably been the, one of the greatest tools that God has used to strip away my fig leaves and to allow me to come out of hiding and to become who he's made me to be in this season of my life. And that's what we're going to call D groups. Okay, so I, I fell into my first D group. And by the way, you can, you, you can call D groups like discipleship groups. I like to think of them as where we go deeper with others. It's where we're really known. I fell into my first D group back when I was a 21-year-old uh, Newport Beach lifeguard. I was going to another church. I went to a life group. This life group very quickly went from like 12 people to 60. It became a small church in somebody's home. And it was an apartment. It was tiny. And we were up the stairs. And oftentimes I would be sitting two flights up, kind of like peeking through to, to see where everybody was. But it was wonderful and it was exciting and that's where I wanted to be. And each night we would break up to pray and, and we would break up, even though that was mixed gender, we would break up into to groups of the same gender to pray. And so there was these two guys that on that first night that we were going to break up that my eyes just caught. One was named Bob. He was a 45-year-old chemical engineer. The other one was Jeff. He was a 33-year-old ex-convict, shaved head, swastika tattoos up one arm, crosses down the other side. He was the kind of guy that he takes his shirt off to tell you his testimony. And he'd spent half his life in jail for strong-armed robbery. So here we have a lifeguard, an ex-convict, and a chemical engineer sitting down to pray together. Right? Sounds like the beginning to a bad joke. And we all were from very different backgrounds. Very different walks of life. But we all had one thing in common. We were all hungry to be known and to stop just kind of playing at being a Christ follower. We were hungry to grow and we wanted a couple of people to spur us on into that. And so we've just began to pray together. First, that God would help us identify those people. And then as the weeks went by, we realized, wait, we are those people. Like, you, you are those guys. I would never have picked you out of a crowd, but... They were the guys that God for that season had identified for me to walk with. And we started from going for like half an hour of prayer at the end of the night to an hour. It became like an hour and a half. And eventually the guys who, whose house we were meeting in, they're like, hey guys, we're going to bed. Just lock up when you leave, all right? And we very quickly realized this is not honoring to them. And so we started meeting um, on a different day. We would meet on Fridays down the street at the omelet parlor. May God rest her soul. We miss her. Tear. Dick Churches has become my new omelet parlor, but there's just nothing like... Anyway, we would meet there on Friday mornings, and we would sit around a table in a booth, sharing life together. And because it was just a couple of other guys, I could be totally open and honest. They knew my story. They knew what I struggled with. I, was, I, I could just share what I was struggling with real time. I could share my hopes and dreams with them. We had space to unpack our lives and then we would pray with one another. We would share the things that God was laying on our hearts and that we were, he was speaking to us through his word. And I was encouraged by them and the things they were hearing. We would oftentimes get to pray with some of the, the, the servers there. And little did I know, but there was this girl that met with one of her friends and disciples down the table named Kathy, who was kind of eyeing me from a distance. Had no idea that was going on, but it kind of worked out in the end. Anyway, we would meet there for several years at the omelet parlor and do life together. 
And they walked with me through a very key part of my life. As I look back on my own life journey, it was Bob and Jeff who walked with me as, as I began to recognize, no, God hasn't designed me to go be an attorney. God has actually made me to walk with people who are hurting. And maybe I could do that um, in, in, I don't know, teaching or something. But really, I want to know, I wanna, I wanna know um, what I really believe, and I don't want to take my parents' word for it. So maybe I'll go back and get my master's in theology to kind of get the tools to answer my own questions. Yeah, I'm going to do that. And they walked with me through that. And they walked with me as I accidentally fell into pastoral leadership wasn't looking for it, didn't go to school to get my master's in theology so I could be a pastor, but they were walking with me through that. They walked with me through a season when I had a crisis of belief. The same week that the Twin Towers fell, my faith or the house of cards that was my theological worldview fell when a professor in one of my classes talked about this, um, you know, this particular group of individuals who, who were playing with how do we articulate god being father son and holy spirit well let's call it the trinity yeah that's a good word i go wait a minute the trinity's not in the bible like the word trinity ah! and that was the sledgehammer that took down the house of cards that were all of my assumptions that i kind of pasted together from my parents and my pastors that was the season in the same season that the twin towers were trying to reconstruct out of the rubble that was the season where god said i'm going to invite you into the depths of relationship and you're going to ask the hard questions that you've just been pushing at arm's length and they walked with me through that season of great doubt it was bob and jeff who walked with me as i finally met that girl at the table down down the way and i began to date kathy and as i got engaged and on the day that i stood before kathy in front of my family and friends it was bob and jeff who officiated my wedding they had become that dear to me and it came out of a life group and just saying, hey, break up and pray. And they, are, they, to this day, have fingerprints all over me of the ways that God has used them to shape me. And they're not the only ones. Because over the last 20 years, as our lives kind of went one way, God has brought others into my life to walk with me. Brian and Drew and, and Josh and Tim for a season. And this season, I'm walking with Russell and Todd and Brian every Friday morning over at Dick Church's in our pit sometimes when he can make it. We get to do life together. We get to be known by one another. We get to share the stuff that we're struggling with. It's not, hey, we got to get to these questions, so let's keep moving. No, it's, I snapped at my kids again, and I, I find myself being so distracted by life that I'm, I'm, I'm missing it. And I just, I want to be present. And, oh man, um, you know, I'm struggling with this at work right now. Never me. This is always them. I never struggle with anything at work, right? I'm struggling with this. I'm not sure how to respond to this. And then we will, we will lean in and pray together. These are guys that I get to do life with in a deeper way than I get to do life with a whole lot of other people. And I love it because God uses them to sharpen and refine me. And I want that for you as well. And that's why I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. But as I wrap this up, I, I, I just want to let you know that this is something that, is, that has been instrumental. Doing life with a couple of other people has been so instrumental in my life that some eight years ago, I said, how can I lead people into finding this as well? Because I want this for them like I want this for me. 
And I, and I developed this kind of D group model at that time and, and, and a kind of a training thing. And I go, okay, I'm ready. Let's do it. And God said, not now, not yet. And then I came to Lighthouse. Maybe it's time. And we remember we did a men's retreat for those of you who were here when I first showed up. And we, we kind of shared our stories. And I said, triads. That was what we were calling them then. But it sounded too much like Chinese mafia. So we said, oh, let's call them D groups instead. Right? Triads. And everyone's like, oh, okay. And I realized, nope, it's not, it was not God's timing. Well, as we were preparing for this year, and as I, I was up at Palomar going, God, what are you leading us towards? How can you help us draw more deeply and intimately into this so that you can use our lives to shine into the darkness? He said, remember that thing that you, that I gave you a vision for eight years ago? It's time. It's time. And so I want to let you know that for this year, probably the primary focus that I have for us as a church is that we would draw, as we abide in Christ, that we would draw more deeply into being known. And so if you are not currently in a life group, then you are not fully experiencing what Lighthouse has to offer. You are not fully engaged in where we are going and you are missing out on the best part of what this is. And if you are ready to go even deeper than that, then I'm going to have a, a, an informational training early next month. It'll probably be on a Sunday morning. But I want to know if you're interested. I want to know if you're in so that I can begin preparing you for that and I can begin praying that God would help you identify. I'm not going to play matchmaker. It's not my job. I'm not very good at it. But I am good at just sharing my experience of what this looks like and having some other people share their experience of what it looks like. It's an opportunity. It's not one size fits all. But it's an opportunity to to paint a picture of what could be, cast some vision, and then trust that the Holy Spirit will lead you to two or three other people who have a similar desire to grow, even if they don't look anything like you, even if they're from a very radically different background. And it's an invitation to do life with other people and to allow God to sharpen and refine you through them. So, in the seat backs in front of you, you got these connection cards. I promise I won't read yet. You got these connection cards here. I want, this is our response today. Every day we're going to have a response. This is our response today is pull this out. If you are not currently signed up in a life group, and you you call Lighthouse home, and you are ready to get engaged here, Then under the section that says community groups, I want you to check that box. Yeah, when we reprint them, we will actually change the name to the correct name. Check that box and Jeff will get in touch with you this week. And we will work on getting you plugged into a life group to do life. And if you are interested in going even deeper and being known by a couple of other people and you're saying, you know what, I would like at some point soon to have a couple other people walk alongside of me and know me intimately so when the enemy begins to whisper in my ear that I'm a failure, I can point to them and say, nah, get away from me because they know who I am and they love me. You have no power, so get behind me, Satan. If that's what you want, then please just write on here, I'm interested in D groups and I will make sure that you get communicated with when we have this meeting, when we begin to pray about it. I will begin praying for you by name about this. But now, let's respond to our God as a family because we get to do life together. And I'm so grateful for our our beautiful, messy family. Let's just worship him together.